Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Sodom and Gomorrah and all the issues related to that, I appreciate your attentiveness and it's been fun, I should say, in, a, in an interesting way, to, to preach through the book of Genesis. And so this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 20. So if you'd like to turn there, Genesis chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to tell you about three different people. The first person I want to tell you about this morning is Michelle. Michelle struggles with bitterness. Her husband left her a few years ago with her two small children for a younger, more attractive woman. And now Michelle is working two jobs trying to make ends meet, and she's very bitter against her husband. She harbors a lot of resentment and angerness in her heart, and she's really trying hard to forgive her ex-husband. And you see, she grew up in church, And she was a strong believer in God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. But now, she's become fatalistic in her outlook on life. She kind of has adopted this attitude that, yes, if there's a God out there, He must be distant. He must not care about me. He must just be this this force like gravity or like light or like heat that really doesn't want anything to do with me. God is distant. God is cold. God is out there. Yeah, I give lip service to God, but He doesn't care about me. Where is God in the midst of my problems? She's become very fatalistic. This whole idea that if God exists... He must not care about me. That's Michelle. Let me tell you about Ron. Ron is a very driven man. He's a very successful man. He's a very wealthy man. He's accumulated a lot of toys to play with in his life. And you see, on the outside, he looks calm, cool, and collected. But when he gets home with his family, he erupts like a volcano. He's a man that's deeply angered. He sometimes can maybe even get borderline violent with his family. But on the outside, everything looks good. And yes, he once was a Sunday school teacher. He once believed strongly in the power and the sovereignty of God, but now he's adopted this attitude that, you know what, God has saved me, and God is powerful, and therefore, I know I have my fire insurance that's going to get me to heaven. I don't have to worry about going to hell. Therefore, I can live however I want to live. He's basically just excused his sin by saying, once saved, always saved. Now I don't have to worry about obeying God. And so he excuses his sin with this view that, yeah, God's sovereign. God saved me. I can live however I want. That's wrong. Jerry struggles with a secret sin that no one knows about. Late at night after his family has gone to bed, in the darkness of the basement, Jerry surfs the internet and he's trapped in a web of pornography and images and video that has gotten him trapped. But you see, there's something different about Jerry 
He understands the gospel. He has surrounded himself with men who have chosen to hold him accountable. He's confessed his sin to his wife. His wife has come alongside him to help him. And he truly understands in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. And he's slowly beginning to see the power of the Holy Spirit transform his life slowly to make changes in godliness. You see, he's not given in to fatalism that God must not care about me and my sin. He's not given in to cheap grace where, well, if God saved me, I can live however I want. He is truly faced to struggle head on and says, my only hope is to trust in the sovereign power of God to change me and he's beginning to see this transformation in his heart now michelle ron and jeremy are fictional people i don't know who they are i made them up for this sermon but they do illustrate a poignant reality that all of us face every single one of us in this room struggles with sin it may be lust it may be pride it may be anger it may be fear it may be Um, resentment, it may be jealousy, whatever your sin is. And the question we often have to ask ourselves, and maybe you you haven't asked this lately, but I ask it a lot, so hopefully I'm not alone up here this morning, and it's this question, why do we struggle with sin? A lot of us here have battle scars in our lives with sin. We've struggled with sin. Sin. And you can respond in one of three ways to sin in your life. Number one, you can be like Michelle and become fatalistic. Well, whatever's going to be is going to be. God's sovereign. He doesn't care. God's not involved in the intimacy of my life. So so I'm just going to lose all hope and just kind of have despair in my life because after all, God is distant. Or number two, you can say, well, if God is powerful and God is sovereign and God has saved me and he sure has shown me grace, I love sinning, God loves forgiving, that's a great relationship. Let's carry this on for a long time. I can do whatever I want because after all, God's powerful, he saved me. Or you can believe in the power of God and the grace of God and live in the godliness of the gospel, seeking Christ with all of your heart so how do we understand these two things the sovereignty of god and our sin how do these two things intersect the sovereignty the goodness the power of god how does that relate to our sin and we've got to ask ourselves a question can god sovereignly overcome our failures don't raise your hand please but how many of you struggle with the same repeated failures over and over again And you wonder, how is God going to overcome my faithlessness with his faithfulness? Especially repeated failures. Now, when we get to this passage of Scripture, we see Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He commits the same exact sin he did back in Genesis chapter 12. He's guilty of repeating the same sin twice. And I want you to think about where we've gone the past few weeks in Genesis. What have we seen? We saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And then right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we saw Lot's two daughters get him drunk and commit incest with him. If there was anything wicked that there ever was sexually or radically wicked, it's in Genesis chapter 19. You you got it all. 
And some of you last week thought, you know, came to me before the sermon, is your sermon going to be PG-13 or is it going to be rated R? And I said, well, the text is kind of, it's borderline. There's a lot of stuff there in Genesis 19. And so we look at Genesis 19 and we say, wow, that's the epitome of sin. And then we get to Genesis 20 and God's man, Abraham, the godly man. This isn't Lot. This is the godly man. He blows it. He fails. And not just a sin he hadn't committed before, but the sin he committed back in Genesis chapter 12. He fails a second time. Epic fail twice. So let's pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 20. And let's see how God deals with sin in his sovereignty. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. And you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in all of this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He's my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children well, the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, this is a repeat of what Abraham did back in Genesis 12. The same exact story. This, in Genesis 12, Abraham goes down to Egypt. And if you remember the story, he goes down to Egypt. He's afraid of Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, this is my sister. Same thing. Same sin, just a different location. Gerar, king Abimelech, Abraham says, she's my sister. Lies the same way, twice. 
the same sin. And so we have to ask the question, why in the world would Abraham do this twice? Hadn't he learned his lesson? Why why experience the same failure twice? And then we, we turn the mirror and we look at ourselves and we ask the question to ourselves, well, why do we commit the same sin twice? Three times, four times, five times. Why? For Abraham, it was a lack of faith. It all boils usually down to a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. Abraham's not believing God in this moment. He fears man. He believes that that he can take matters into his own hands. You see, Abraham doesn't believe God is great. Because if he believed God is great, he wouldn't take matters into his own hands. Abraham doesn't believe God is glorious. Abraham doesn't believe that God is good. And Abraham doesn't believe that God is gracious. He's having a, a belief failure here in who God is. And that's what a lack of faith looks like. And so here's the main point for this morning. Here's the big idea that emerges from this text. Very simple text, pretty, pretty easy to understand. But here it is. God sovereignly overcomes our failures with his faithfulness. Amen. God sovereignly overcomes our failures with his faithfulness. So what I want to do this morning is I want to see this in three different areas. Three issues, three, th- three big ticket items that will help us to understand this text more fully. Here's the first thing I want us to explore. I want to see Abraham's specific failures. There are four of them. Four ways Abraham fails in this passage of Scripture. The first way that Abraham fails is that he basically feared man. He thought he was going to be murdered. If you go back to verse 11, what does it say? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. It's the same reason back in Genesis chapter 12 that he feared. He feared for his life. These men are going to kill me. Now let's just think about Abraham for a moment. He's paralyzed in fear, and he's forgotten all of the promises that God has given him. We've seen God promise Abraham time after time, going all the way back to Genesis 12. What has God promised Abraham? You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You're going to have a son, Isaac. He's the son of the promise. You're going to have offspring as numerous as the stars of the sea. I've given you promise after promise after promise after promise. Abraham, why don't you believe it? Why don't you believe it? God has taken care of him time and time and time again and given him these great promises, but Abraham's not believing it. He thinks thinks that he knows better than God. These men are going to kill me. That's his first failure. Feared for his life. When God had promised him, no, I've got your back, Abraham. Secondly, he lied about Sarah. Second time he's done this. Flat out lied about her. She's my sister, not my wife. Thirdly, He slanders the character of Abimelech. In verse 11, let's look at that verse again. Abimelech comes to Abraham and said, why did you do this? Why did you lie? And what does Abraham say in verse 11? I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. You guys are pagans. You guys don't believe in God. There's there's no one righteous here. This, This is a pagan city. But what do we find out about Abimelech? In verse 5, he pleads his innocence. What has Abimelech said in verse 5? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. As a matter of fact, Abimelech acted honorably, didn't he? He didn't touch 
Sarah. He didn't go after Sarah. He didn't try to, to, to do anything to Sarah. He was a man of integrity. And so Abraham basically maligns or slanders Abimelech's character. But here's the fourth issue. And it's probably the biggest. He puts the birth of Isaac at risk. What's been building up this entire story all the way back to Genesis 12? The son, the son, the son, the son. He's already messed up with Hagar, if you remember a few months back. Hagar bore Ishmael. That, 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 that went wrong. He's just seen Lot royally mess up with his daughters. And now Abraham's going to put the very future of the nation of Israel, the promised son, in jeopardy by doing this a second time. In line of all the good we've seen from Abraham so far, this is an epic failure a second time. Twice he's failed. That's, that's Abraham's failure, his sin. But let, secondly, for this morning, let's see God's sovereignty in action. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture because God sovereignly works in the heart of a pagan king to bring about his purposes. In verse 6, God comes to Abimelech in a dream. Look at verse 6. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So who, who, who's, who's doing it here? God sovereignly worked to prevent Abimelech from sinning. God sovereignly overpowered Abimelech's temptation to possibly take Sarah into his harem. God sovereignly overrode the, the evil impulses of a king and did this. He was restrained from doing this by the almighty hand of God. God says, I'm the one that did this sovereignly. And then in verses 14 through 16, you see that God intervenes again. And actually, the weird story here, after the sin has been discovered, Abimelech gives all these pieces of silver and all this cattle to Abraham and says, hey, no big deal. Just it's weird. But here's the thing that's interesting about this passage of Scripture. Who's the more noble one in the Scripture, Abraham or Abimelech? Abimelech's more noble, right? But notice verse 7. Verse 7 should shock you when you're reading this. Now then, God is speaking to Abimelech in the dream. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. In verse 7, God calls Abraham a prophet. It's the very first time the word prophet shows up in the Bible. He's a prophet. And not only is he a prophet, but he's going to pray for you, pagan king, that you may live. Now think about Abimelech for a moment. When you are Abimelech and you found out that Abraham lied to you, what are you thinking about Abraham? This guy's a coward. This guy's a hypocrite. This guy's a fake. I have no respect for Abraham. This guy's a jerk. But what does God say about Abraham in the dream? Abraham's not a jerk. He's a prophet. He's a man of God. He's going to pray for you. As a matter of fact, if Abraham doesn't pray for you, you're not going to live king. That's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow if you're Abimelech. Well, what do you mean he's a prophet? He's a jerk to me. This gives me great encouragement for all of us jerks out there. 
Because no matter what the world may say about you, let's just face it, there are times that we fail, don't we? There are times when we epically fail and sin, and the world looks at us and says, I told you so. You're no better than the rest of them. You're a hypocrite. You're a loser. You're a fake. You're a phony. Why don't you all Christians just admit that this is who you are? And we're not, we're not saying that we're not sinning. We own up to our sin, but the, the shame and the accusations that come from the enemies, from the world, don't have a sticking point on us because what does God say when he looks down upon his children? God looks down upon his children who've trusted Christ for salvation, and God sees the righteousness of Christ and says, I see a, a child that's blameless because of the blood of Christ. So those accusations aren't going to, to stick because we're not guilty. Now, it's not an excuse to go out and keep sinning, And not worry about the damage done to our testimony. But it does show us that even in the midst of failure, God can overcome that. God can redeem that. God can forgive that. Let's think about Abraham for a moment. What's Abraham remembered for in the rest of the Bible? Is it these two episodes of him lying? Does anybody remember these stories about Abraham? When you go to Romans and Galatians and Hebrews and James that talk about Abraham in the New Testament, what's he remembered for? being a man of faith, a man who had confidence in God. It's not the epic failures that marked Abraham's life. It was his faith. So God overcame these failures in his sovereignty. And that's the story, straight straight story. Pretty easy to understand. Abraham lies. Abimelech finds out. God calls him a prophet. Everything's cool. Abraham gets all this, this money Sarah is vindicated. It's the end of the story. Okay, but how does this relate to us? This is the third thing I want us to look at this morning. Maybe spend a little bit more time on this. Let's look at the practical application of how God's sovereignty intersects with our failures. How does God's sovereignty intersect with our failures? Can we establish this morning that we're going to fail? that we're going to sin, and that we're probably going to repeat the same sins maybe over and over again. This week, the sin that you struggle with this week, you're probably going to commit next week. Now, it's not an excuse to do that, but let's just be real honest. We fail. So how does God's sovereignty intersect with our sin? How does believing in a sovereign God serve as an incentive not to sin? There's two extremes that you can take when it comes to God's sovereignty in your sin. And there's a danger for those of us that believe highly in the sovereignty of God. There's two dangers. The first danger is what we saw earlier with Michelle. It's fatalism. Fatalism says this. If there's a God out there, I give lip service to him, but he really doesn't care about me. He's distance. He's never going to come in and take take my sin and deal with it. I might as well just dive into despair. I might as well just go into a depression. Uh, There's no purpose for why I'm struggling. God could never come in the midst of my sin and do anything about it because God's distant. God's a force of nature. What's going to be? What's going to be? I might as well resign myself and I'm going to be stuck with the sin the rest of my life because after all, if God's sovereign, he doesn't care. That is fatalism. That's not God's sovereignty. That's fatalism. Yes, God is sovereign, but does he care? Absolutely. Listen to this great passage of Scripture 
from Matthew. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 10, 29-31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. And then Jesus says here that God sovereignly knows when birds are going to die. So think about all the birds that are in the world right now that have died in the past few seconds. God knew about that. God knows what bird's going to die here in the future. God is sovereign over birds dying. But even more importantly, Jesus says, not only if the birds who fall out of the sky are valuable to God, think about how much more you're valuable to him. As a matter of fact, God has every hair on your head numbered. God intimately knows your life. God sovereignly is intricately woven into your life. God cares. God knows. You're valuable to your Father. So God's sovereignty is not meant, to us, meant for us to embrace fatalism. There's no purpose There's no hope. God's sovereign. He's just a a distant force up there. He doesn't really care about me. He He cares about the big things like running the world and making sure planets don't collide, but he really doesn't care about me personally. No, that's not a true belief in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is, yes, he's in control of the planets, but he also knows the hairs on your head and he's intimately involved in your life. And God's sovereignty should be a soft pillow for you to lay your head on at night knowing that you can rest. He's going to work all things out according to the counsel of his will. So one wrong way to respond is fatalism. Here's the second wrong way to respond. I see a lot of Christians do this. Well, if God is sovereign, and God has saved me, and God has forgiven my sins through Jesus Christ, and I know I'm going to heaven, then I can live however I want. doesn't matter if I obey I get a free pass. Like I said earlier, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. That's a great relationship. Let's keep this thing up. What does Paul say about that? In Romans chapter 6, here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. He's saying, are we going to continue to keep on sinning because God keeps showing more and more grace? He says, by no means. Heaven forbid. It's a strong, a strong way to say it in the original language. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying it's, it's impossible. If you're a Christian here this morning, your old life has been buried and you've been raised to new life and we're to walk in that newness of life. And so we can't just say, hey, God loves forgiving. I love sinning. I'm going to live however I want. Paul says, by no means. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, because you've been saved, because you've been raised to newness of life, it's an incentive for you to want to obey Jesus. Not just to keep on sinning, to live however you want. So you can't go into the ditch of fatalism. God doesn't care. God's sovereign. Or the ditch of what I call cheap grace or license. God is sovereign. I can live however I want. How are we to biblically respond then? What's the biblical way to respond to God's sovereignty as a motivation for us not to sin? Have you thought about that? 
God's sovereignty is a motivation for us not to sin. Listen to Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What's, what's this grace of God doing? This grace of God is training us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to walk in righteousness. God's grace. So what I want to do this morning for the remainder of our time is to give you four truths about God's sovereignty that I hope will help as an incentive, a motivation, an encouragement for us not to sin. Not to sin the way Abraham did. So here's the first. If we truly believe that God is sovereignly great, we don't have to be in control. If you believe that God is sovereignly great, then you and I don't have to be in control. Listen to Psalm 96, 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. You see, if we don't believe in God's greatness then what we end up doing is we try to become great ourselves. We try to manipulate. We try to control. We try to get frustrated in bringing things out in our own power. We find our security in being a control freak. How many of you are control freaks? Don't raise your hands. Your spouse will probably give you a nudge. Or your parents. Or your child. You see, when we believe in God's greatness we don't have to be great we don't have to try to be in control we don't have to try to manipulate the situation we don't have to try to dominate we don't try to have to wear ourselves out through frustration trying harder to make things happen we don't have to try really really hard to be in control because god's in control a lot of sin comes from us trying to be in control when we really should allow God to be in control. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 40 says. This is what happens when you let God be in control. This is what happens to the Christian when you believe by faith that God is great and you don't have to try to manipulate and work things out in your own power. You trust in the greatness of God. Listen to Isaiah 40, 26 through 31. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's talking about the stars. He brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. God names the stars by the greatness of his might. And because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. 
When we trust in the greatness of God, he lifts us up like wings on eagles, and we're not frustrated, we're not tired, we're not trying to wear ourselves out by being a control freak. We trust in the sovereign greatness of God. We don't have to be in control. That's number one. Secondly, if we truly believe that God is sovereignly glorious, we don't have to fear others. Not only do we need to believe by faith that God is great, so that we don't have to be in control, we have to believe that God is glorious so that we don't have to fear others. Think about this for a minute. One of the main reasons why you and I sin is because we fear people. We either fear rejection by people or we fear that we won't be accepted by people and we give in to peer pressure. Either way, you live in fear of other people whether they're going to reject you or whether they're going to accept you and you find your identity and what other people think of you. And you end up fearing people instead of fearing God. Instead of seeing the glory and majesty and splendor of Almighty God and finding joy and satisfaction in God, we begin to try to find glory in how other people perceive us. And that can be a crippling fear. Listen to how David learned to fear the Lord. A healthy fear. You see, here's what happens oftentimes in sin. God becomes really small and people become really big. That leads to a lot of sin. When God becomes small and people become big, you do a lot of things you would never think you would do because you're living in the fear of what others think of you. But listen to what David said in Psalm 27, 1 through 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my, of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat me up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You see, in this psalm, David is expressing confidence in the the ability of the Lord to protect him. I'm not going to be afraid of anybody. You know, these armies are going to come against me. These enemies are going to come against me. These people are going to come against me. Everybody's against me, but my trust, my hope is in God. He's going to put me high upon a rock. I'm going to fear God. And the greatest thing I can do, David says, is to gaze upon his beauty. Because when you see when you see the majesty and you see the glory and you see the beauty and the power of Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ, people become small. And you don't have to try to win their approval. You don't have to try to live in fear of them. You don't have to try to worry about their opinions. You don't have to try to control them or worry about them controlling you. You live for the glory of God. When God is glorious, then you don't have to fear people. So do you believe God is great? Do you believe God is glorious? Thirdly, if we truly believe that God is sovereignly good, we do not have to look in other places to find goodness. If we truly believe that God is sovereignly good, we do not have to look in other places to find goodness. 
see, one of the other main reasons we sin, we doubt God's goodness. We begin to think God isn't that good after all. As a matter of fact, we begin to think that sin promises fun. Sin promises enjoyment. Sin promises pleasure, and it will. Don't let anybody ever tell you sinning's not fun. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. The problem is the pleasure is only fleeting. It's temporal. And see, we believe the lie that God's not good. So if God's not good, I better go find goodness elsewhere. That's what Eve believed. When the serpent came to Eve, what did Eve do? She doubted God's goodness. You mean I have this whole garden in which to eat from? Every tree from this garden. I've got perfect fellowship with with God, but there's this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil I can't eat from? God must be holding out on me. God must be holding back. God must not have my best interest in heart. God's not good. And then we begin to buy into that and thinking, God really must be holding out on me. God must not be a good God. He must be holding out on me. So therefore, I need to go find goodness in other places. How often do we think God is holding out on us? And we go to all these other places to find joy. In John 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her something interesting when he meets that woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, she's there at the well drawing water, and, and she thinks Jesus is talking about physical water, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm, I'm talking about spiritual water that comes from me. In John four thirteen through 14, he says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that comes from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him springs of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus here saying to the woman at the well, I satisfy. I'm good. As a matter of fact, if you, if you come to me by faith, you will have springs of water flowing from you spiritually. You will be refreshed. You will have the joy, as the, Lord, uh, the joy of the Lord as your strength. You will find goodness in me. And here's the, the lie that we buy. We think that Jesus isn't good, so we're going to go find a cheap substitute to help us find goodness. Instead of the, the, the wells of living water that come from Jesus, we do what Jeremiah says. In Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, Jeremiah said, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus comes and says, I offer living water. And we'd say, you know what? That's great, Jesus, but I'd rather go over here to the cesspool and I'd rather dig out my little hole here that has cracks and sit in a mud puddle because actually this is more fun, Jesus. And we may laugh at that, but that's what we do. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here's the fourth thing. If we truly believe that God is sovereignly gracious, we don't always have to try to prove ourselves and earn his favor. Many Christians give lip service to God's grace. Yes, I believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Yes, grace, grace, grace. But at the end of the day, there must be something I've got to do. 
We're hardwired to believe that we've got to earn God's approval. If I just work hard enough, if I just do enough, because after all, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Really, I deserve to be in heaven, so I'm going to earn it. I'm going to work for it. And then you get frustrated, and then you become legalistic. Because here's what happens. You begin to have this standard of behavior, thinking that you've got to earn your way. And when other people don't live up to your standard, you begin to lay into them. You begin to be legalistic towards other people. You begin to be complaining about how other people don't live up to your standard. Because after all, your standard's your standard, and you don't believe in grace, so you become judgmental and legalistic on others. Listen to R.C. Sproul. Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people. For beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because after all, we deserve to be there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, let's think about repeated failures here for a moment. Abraham repeated the failure. God sovereignly came in and worked the situation and redeemed it. And God can do that in our repeated failures, but it comes down to this belief system. Do we believe that God is great? Do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that God is glorious? Do we believe that God is gracious? You know, in God's sovereignty, we're not to go into fatalism or into cheap grace, the two ditches you can fall off into. But we come back to by faith and say, God is sovereignly good, God is sovereignly glorious, God is sovereignly great, and he's sovereignly gracious. And that's the motivation for us to serve him. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When we're faithless, he's faithful. When we sin, he forgives. God does not expect you to clean your act up by being better God does not expect you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God expects you to look outside of yourself at the finished work of Christ on the cross and by faith receive the free gift of salvation and believe by faith that God is great. God is good. God is glorious. God is gracious. And you live in the freedom of that. And when you believe that, it's a motivation for you not to sin. And when you do sin, you go back to the cross. And you find God's arms wide open there again to pick you up, to dust you off, to clean you up, and to get you back on the path. All of us here need grace. And so the Lord's Supper is a visual way for us to remember our need for grace. 
When we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a way of proclaiming that Jesus Christ sufficiently saves us from all sins, past, present, and future. Now, this is not an excuse to go on sinning. It's not an excuse to just kind of say, God, God's going to give me a free pass because he saved me. I can live however I want. No, we need to strive for holiness, but we realize that there's only grace through the blood of Christ. And so when we come to the Lord's table today, what I want us to do if you're struggling with sin this morning, a repeated sin, a failure, a pattern in your life, a sin pattern, would you confess that sin to Jesus and believe that he's faithful to forgive you? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And as we come to the Lord's table, let, let it be a fresh way to look at God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's greatness, God's glory, and God's grace again this morning. And may we find joy and assurance and security that God can sovereignly overcome our failures with his faithfulness. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper, I want us just to spend a few moments in quiet prayer if there's a sin in your heart that you need to confess to the Lord, would you spend time confessing that right now? Some of you, it's a repeated failure. You, you know exactly what the failure is that you repeat over and over again. Go a second time. You go a third time to, the, to, to confess. And you say, well, what if I do it again, Pastor Sean? We'll go to the cross. Go confess it. what if I do it again? Go to the cross. Go confess it to Jesus. Instead of running away from him in shame or running away from him in fear, run to him to find forgiveness, to find his blood sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That's a wonderful promise. Spend some time drawing near to him with the promise that he draws near to you. I'm going to ask those that are helping with the Lord's Supper to make their way up to the front at this time. The rest of you can just remain in a posture of prayer. Continue to be praying silently as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.